Listen, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 5 is where we pick up, where we left off last week. If you're sort of visiting with us today or picking up, here's what's going on. Um, So the people of God, the Israelites, have just wandered really far away from God. God has put them in a season of just utter judgment and almost ruin, but not devastation, but, but certainly ruin. They are under the judgment of God. God uh, brings and raises up the Philistine people to come in and invade Israel. Uh, They come in in the previous chapters, Israel and them fight. Uh, They sort of try to do what's right in their own eyes, and they try to bring the Ark of the the Covenant uh, into battle with them, and God didn't tell them to do that. And so what happens is uh, they end up just utterly wiped out. They fight them the first time, lose 4,000 men, go back, seek the Lord, bring the Ark in, fight the Philistines again. They lose again. This time they lose upwards of 30,000 men. But this time the high priest Eli, the two sons, uh, sons, so three of them are dead. And then we left off where we have the mom of Phinehas who has a child, and in child bearing, she dies and she names the child Ichabod, meaning the presence of the Lord has left. And so here we are in the midst of this, the ark of God has been captured. It's been taken. Ichabod has been declared over the people of God. God's glory has departed from his people. And then in we pick up beginning in chapter five, verse one, read along just the first two verses with me where it says this, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, and they set it up besides Dagon. So a couple of things are happening here in this moment. From Ebenezer all the way to Ashdod, it's about 30 miles southeast. And so they pick up that ark, defeat the Israelites, go as far into their kingdom as they possibly can to the headquarters to where the temple of their main god, Dagon, resided. Now, Dagon was the, the God of all gods in the life of the Philistines. And if you didn't know, Lord, didn't know the Lord, uh, did not know Yahweh as, as Yahweh, you typically would worship as a Philistine. You would worship Dagon, though they had many gods. And so what they do is they bring this ark all the way to this city, and they then take the ark and they bring it into this temple. But if you would imagine for me just a moment that if this room had idols of worship in it, what would have happened is they would have taken the ark of covenant and put it sort of next to the god Dagon in a subservient way. And they would have sought to to make this impression that the God of the Israelites, whom we just defeated, was lesser than than our God. So they would have put it at a lesser place and position of, of power and authority there for all of the world to see. But if we can remember back several weeks ago, when we talked about the Ark of the Covenant, one of the things that the Israelites failed to understand and the Philistines failed to understand was that the Ark of the Covenant was not and did not contain the power of God. It was simply a place where God in his sovereignty would choose to display his glory or not display his glory, but you couldn't cast a spell or mix a potion to get God to manifest himself in some way. He did it at his own sovereign choosing. And what they tried to do was to manipulate God to act in a preconditioned way to fight for them and to defend them according to their terms and not according to his. And so it ended with 35,000 plus soldiers that perished. And typically in the Old Testament and even the New, when, when they would take surveys of numbers, you oftentimes could, could double the number or triple the number because if you were a woman or a child, you typically weren't counted. You were typically seen as a little bit lesser than. So we see these numbers of these men that died in battle, but it was far too often, probably far more than what we actually see in the text itself because of who was counted and who was valued. But I want you to notice the significance of this. And I want you to remember back to chapter 4, verse 8. 
And these Philistines remembered who the God of the Israelites were, and they make this allusion in 4.8, this remembrance of these were the people that their God, Yahweh, the God of the Ark of the Covenant, He was the God that freed the Israelites from the Egyptians, the most formidable and powerful force in existence at that point in that area. They were the ultimate army, and God, in His goodness, delivered them from the Egyptians, and now they had delivered the Israelites into the hands of the Philistines. And so the Philistines, at least for a moment in time, began to think that they were sort of the the top dog, if you will. And so we keep reading in verse 3, and he says this, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. Now some might think at first glance, as you walk into the temple as a Philistine, you have proudly conquered the Israelites. You have enslaved them, taken away their property, personal possessions. They were now your personal property. And you had conquered their God and you take their God and you put him in your temple and, and as, as they would do when they conquered people. And you go to bed tonight excited, happy, and, and rejoicing at what Dagon had done for you and, and he had delivered the Israelites into your hand and you wake up and you go to temple and then all of a sudden for the first time ever you see your God carved out in this stone and there he is lying face down on the floor. You remember from earlier chapters when God promises to bring about uh, his name and, and his renown in the life of the Israelites, he uses this really peculiar phrase. It's kind of a weird thing to say and almost a little bit uncomfortable where the Lord says, I'm going to do something to make your ears tingle. Do you remember this? Like what a strange thing for God to say as he begins to orchestrate his his, uh, desire to see his people come back to him. And what he does in order to do that is he sends them into captivity at this point and he allows the ark, the place in which he would manifest his presence and show his glory, its capture. And he allows 35,000 of of his redeemed people to be taken into captivity, to be put to death by the sword. And here we have, they take the ark. And here in verse 3, Dagon falls to the ground before the ark of the Lord. But I want you to notice something that happens in verse 3. Now, I've told you this in previous weeks, that 1 Samuel 4, 5, 6, and 7 are meant to be read all together. And they really communicate one larger idea, but when we separate them down into smaller chunks, because there's just a lot there, so that's what I chose to do, but most preachers will preach all three or four of those chapters together. But one of the things we miss when we begin to hone in on just the forest is the change of language that exists from chapter 4 to chapter 5, meaning in chapter 4, in about verses 17 through 21 and verses 11 and 12, what we see the Ark of the Covenant referred to, it's referred to in generic terms, the Ark of God. Not a wrong name, not a wrong description, just a much more broader description for the Ark. And the reason why the author does that is because when he gets to chapter 5, what he begins to do with the words and the text is notice he then changes from the Ark of God to the ark of the Lord. And he uses, in these two instances, he uses the divine name of God, Yahweh. Not the ark of God, but the ark of Yahweh in this moment. 
And what he's trying to do is to delineate between Yahweh, the only God who saves and and is alive, from this dead pagan god, Dagon. And then he says they go to bed and they put him back in his place. The ark of the Lord, which was the one that does this. Then verse 4 says, when they rose early on the next morning, day two, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, the ark of Yahweh. And this time, what was different was the head of Dagon And both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Two things about that. Obviously, they walk in. This time, Dagon's back on his face. This time, he's decapitated. And this time, he has no hands. In the Hebrew, it it literally reads this this phrase, only the trunk of Dagon was left. It has this awkward construction, which I think is meant to sort of make us feel awkward in the way the Philistines would have walked in and seen their God with his head cut off and no hands. And it literally would read straight from the Hebrew, only Dagon remained on him. Like syntactically, that doesn't make a lot of sense and it doesn't flow in the English. But the reason why literally it would read that way is because it's meant to make us feel uncomfortable. To see the the being that we put all of our hope in as the Philistines do and they walk into that temple and he's headless and he has no hands. Basically, he's just a big stump laying there on the ground face down again. And the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord is untouched. It's unblemished. And this is why, verse 5, the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of him would not tread on the threshold to this day. For it says in verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors in both Ashdod and its territory. We're familiar with that word heavy in verse 6, in the beginning of that. We've seen that word a couple of times throughout the book of 1 Samuel. And if you remember from last week, we said that that word heavy, it it comes from a Hebrew word, kabod, which means glory. And so in this instance, when we read the word heavy, the, the hand of the Lord was heavy. What it literally means is that the glory of the Lord was in that place in such a way that it was against the people and it terrified and it afflicted them all throughout the territory. You remember when The mom dies in chapter 2 and and she names the child. What does she say and what does she name the child? She calls him Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has left us. The glory of the Lord has departed. In other words, what we can no longer see is glory being the, the display, the manifestation of the perfection and the holiness of God. It's no longer here for he has removed himself from us. Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed, but now we see that the glory has landed in a pagan temple in Ashdod, and he is there with power. It says in verse 7, and when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Goth. And they brought the ark of God of Israel there. Now Goth was a territory within the Philistine empire that would have taken it as closely as it possibly could to Israel without actually putting it in Israel. 
Geographically, it would have been like in the foothill mountains, like where the territory sort of overlaps with one another. And so they came really close to giving it back, but weren't quite ready to give it back and didn't quite necessarily understand what was taking place and what was happening. But after verse 9, they had brought it around. It says the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. Panic ensues. So here these tumors rise up and the people of God become terrified at what's happening because there's no such thing as coincidence. The ark comes, they occupy and possess the ark and all of a sudden their people start dying and becoming afflicted with these tumors. I got hung up this past week on on what the tumors were, and, and there were quite a few, uh, uh, quite a few, most Old Testament scholars would contend this, that the tumors that they got were uh, probably most likely ascribed by rats. And these rats would have come in the form, they carried what was known as a form of the bubonic plague, and, and this is what mo- most likely would have afflicted them. But some Hebrew authors say, listen, tumors is not really an accurate translation for that word out of the Hebrew, that, that more accurately, it should just be described in a general setting as a swelling that takes place. As a swelling that takes place that would have afflicted them in all kinds of places and areas. And two scholars, one that I absolutely respect, a guy named Robert Chisholm, says this, that most likely it was a form of not just the bubonic plague, but what he described as ulcers to not take away from the dignity of this pulpit and this room, but ulcers in the nether regions. In other words, it could be argued that God gave them a very severe case of hemorrhoids. That's what this was. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but there was no such thing as Ben Gay back during this time. This would have been not just a painful affliction, but it would have been one of the most annoying afflictions that one could have had. They never would have been able to find comfort. They never would have been able to find rest. And these tumors ultimately breaks out amongst them, and many of them ultimately end up dying. But whatever the tumor actually is, or whatever the swelling actually is, the point was that they were under divine judgment from God in this moment. So verse 10 picks up and he says that they send the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came there, the people of Ekron cried out. They have brought around to us the ark in Israel, to the God of Israel, to kill us and our people. And they sent, therefore, and they gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. And the hand of God, again, was heavy. The glory of God was heavy there. And the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This past Monday, we were getting together to plan uh, worship, and one of the things that we do in that meeting is we'll look at the text we're going to read after we debrief from the previous Sunday, and try to give a, a main idea, some principles that we're sort of headed towards and try to unify the service around the text. And, and I, at just some point I told uh, one of the guys, at least this, that, listen, you're in trouble because I'm talking about hemorrhoids and tumors this, this Sunday, and I have no idea what songs go with any of that. 
And I think the general sentiment was, listen, we'll just sing about the glory of God and how wonderful he is. And I was like, amen, best to not be specific in those moments. But when we look at chapters 4 and 5 and 6, we, we see this in the, in the paradigm or the plight of the suffering of God's people. When I came to faith when I was 17 years old, I spent a lot of time wrestling with God, just kind of going like, if there is a God, is it the God of the Bible? And how do I know that that God's really real? And is this really trustworthy? And so you begin to read and study and you begin to pursue certain things and try to answer difficult questions. And listen, we as a people ought to be able to answer difficult questions, especially when it comes to evil and suffering and affliction. And is the God of the Bible in the Old Testament the same as the God of the Bible in the New Testament? We ought to press into those things to grow in our faith. But we understand this idea that when we Ask the question according to this text is how could a good and loving and kind God afflict people with tumors, afflict them with, with swelling, afflict them with discomfort? How could a loving and, and kind God, according to the Bible, allow 35,000 of his own children called for his purposes and send them into battle to only ultimately be destroyed by the Philistines? The answer to those questions are often complex, and the answer to those questions with specifics would, would evade our, our time here this morning. But I want to share with you this idea that if God were small enough to be understood in those difficult questions, He wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. If he were small enough to be understood, then he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. In other words, Paul talks about this in the context of the mysteries of God are being revealed. And listen to me, friend. The moment you think you've got God figured out completely, the God that you are worshipping in that moment is a God that you have fashioned and invented in your own mind and with your own thoughts. For his ways are not our ways. His methods are not always our methods. His purposes are not always our purposes. What he wants is not always what we want. He is God, and I am not. And if I begin to figure him out, or when I begin, isn't this how God works? The more I begin to wrestle with some of these deeper things, God begins to reveal things to me. And the more that I know, listen to me, this ought to be all of our postures. The more that you grow and learn and know, the more that you have to realize in that growing how much you actually don't know a thing. Like the more I understand God, the more I begin to realize how much I do not understand God. And how I have to wrestle with those things all of my life. But here in the midst of this chapter on suffering, whether it be the Israelites and the decimation that they were experiencing, the departure of the glory of God in their life, or here in this moment, these Philistines who were being afflicted with all kinds of things, it's understood that biblically speaking, from Genesis to Revelation, suffering is the very thing that God most often uses to refine His people. It's hardship is the place that God puts us oftentimes and, and he grows our faith and, and he develops our hope and, and he grows our trust even deeper. It's in the midst of difficult things that God grows his people. It's in the midst of hardship. If we've learned anything from the cross, we know that the way of the cross is suffering for Jesus says it to us, doesn't he? Take up your cross and... Follow me. 
Let my, uh, cast your burdens upon me and, and, and I will make them light. This is the way of the cross. Suffering is the very thing God most often uses to refine his people, to make us into new people. But I also want to say this to you. If you find yourself in a place of suffering right now, I want you to hear two things. One, God hadn't forgotten about you. He knows you're suffering right now. He knows your wants and your longings. He knows your hurts. He, he sees your disappointments. He's right there with you. He's not forgotten. He's not looking past you. He's not ignoring you. He's right there in the midst with you. But know this also, that when we experience seasons of pain and suffering, it reminds us that we are not in control. And it also reminds us of the truth that we were never actually in control to begin with. That the control was an illusion and something we told ourselves that I can manage and, and that I can cope with. When we experience pain and suffering, we realize the fact that we are not in control, but also, maybe more importantly, that we never really were control, in control to begin with. And the Israelites learned this the hard way. The Philistines are currently learning this in this moment, this empire that God is bringing down to a, to a crumble. But I also want to say one more thing when it comes to the idea of, of evil and, and suffering. Just philosophically speaking, it's a truth that I think is echoed elsewhere in the book of Romans. But it's the idea that God allows evil only to the degree that it brings about the very opposite of what it intends. He allows hardships that the world may need for one thing, that the devil meant for something else. And he turns it around and he flips it on its head and he uses it for something else, for His glory and for your good, for His purposes, and so that you would look more and more like Jesus in the midst of those things. This is the God that we sing about. This is the God that we serve. One of the things that God does for us in this narrative here in chapter 5 is He reminds us of a couple of things. He, he proves that He's a living God. Notice there was no help in the temple. They leave the temple, lock the doors, they go out, and then all of a sudden they come back and Dagon is lying face down. They put him back up. They go back to sleep the next day, come back in. This time Dagon's back down on the ground, his head's removed and he's lost his hands. You know what this tells us? And this is something that has deeply shaped my life, this idea that God does not need me to build his kingdom. He doesn't need me. He's sovereign. But friend, the hope of the gospel is this, why God doesn't absolutely need us. Friends, the church needs you. I need you. We need each other. And God's going to grow his kingdom. According to Isaiah, he says, listen, I won't give my glory to anybody else. According to Isaiah 48, I will not let anyone defame my name. In my time, I will deal with those things. You let me handle that just like I handled it in the temple. We're called to pray. We're, we're called to be on mission. We're called to one another, each other, because we need each other. But the, the truth of the gospel is this. Our God is bigger than that. And what he does is, is he says, listen, you want to be a part of something eternal? You come get into my story and you come be a part of my kingdom, the kingdom that I'm growing, because I'm not growing Drew's kingdom or Haley's kingdom or Matt's kingdom or Jeffrey's kingdom. I'm growing my kingdom. And you can come be a part of that. 
Because I promise you, no matter how hard I would try to paint a picture of what my personal kingdom would look like, it would always pale in comparison to the kingdom as been revealed in the scriptures. It is so much better and grander and greater and bigger than what we could paint with words and with stories. But he proves in this moment that he is a living God by doing these things. He teaches that he is the only true God. That all the little gods, the Dagons and the Baals and and all of these other gods that we'll see in these chapters coming, he proves time and time again that he is the only true God that is powerful and that is mighty to save. When we read dark passages of Scripture, when we read moments like this where just the glory of the Lord is just heavy and thick on His people and and God is in the midst of this and bringing all of this back because what we're going to see if we kept reading is we're going to see the return and the restoration and God do some blessing along the way because remember, He was about to do something to make their ears tingle. And He does it. And when we look on dark chapters in Scripture and narratives that exist in these ways, we cannot help but think about that darkness alongside of the darkness that existed on the cross of of Christ when He was crucified for your sins and mine. The Father turns His back upon the sons and Jesus becomes the propitiation. He becomes the anger and the wrath of God that is absorbed by the Father because of your sins and because of mine. And He makes atonement for you and me. For His glory and for your good. He defeats sin, death, and evil through His resurrection so that you and I can live life and live it abundantly and we can flourish and and we can walk with God and understand, yes, God doesn't need us, but what He's doing is He's calling us to live on mission with Him. He's saying, come on, let's go. Look at the kingdom that I'm building. Why would you not want to live according to the kingdom that is coming, not the kingdom here on this earth? Because the kingdom coming is so much better than the one here. And so my aim is that I would do everything I can to live for the kingdom to come and not the one that I'm currently in. Though I'm grateful, though I'm appreciative of of the good things that God gives and the relationships and the things and the experiences and the trips and whatever God provides, I'm thankful for those. Say glory be to Him, but I'm not living for those things. I'm living for the things to come. Ultimately, Jesus' scars became His glory. And God will do the same with your suffering and with your scars. When your faith is rightly placed in Him and put in Him, and when you trust Him, He will take those wounds and He will take those hurts and He will mend them and He will, he will turn those cuts and those wounds into, into scars as reminders of where He brought you out of, brought you out of death, and into life. You know, because we can say as a testimony, our God is still living, we've seen some pretty powerful testimonies here over the past three or four weeks through baptism, have we not? We saw Sam, who maybe was the the greatest baptism that I've seen in the past 10 to 15 years, just be overwhelmed with excitement about what God was doing and calling Sam from death to life. Why? Because our God is a living God. And then we watch Zach, who, who watched Sam, and Zach finds us online, and then he comes to the service, then we connect him in a small group, and he's being cared for and loved for, and he says, listen, I have a testimony of, of death to life as well, and I'm ready to enter into the waters of baptism. That's a testimony of a living God. 
And then we have Mary Ann who, who comes down the following week and, and the same testimony, the joy and the peace of Christ that, that's in her life, that God is Savior. That's a testimony of a living God. Our God is still alive and He's still saving people and redeeming them. And our job as a people is just simply to be on mission. I want to say this to you lovingly. I said it to the first service and I'm not quite figured out yet how they responded to it. Although they got my hemorrhoid joke better than you did. Listen to me. I love that y'all are here every Sunday. I love seeing the same faces. I love seeing the new faces that come. I love seeing the old that have come back. All of those things. And I'm grateful that you're here. And I'm grateful that you're, you're in these rows. And I'm, I'm grateful that many of you have, have made the transition into the circles because the circles are more than rows. Shameless plug for small groups. Let's go. I'm grateful for all those things. But if we limit our mission to just being what happens on Sunday morning for a couple of hours, friends, then you are not on mission. You've missed it. Somewhere along the way, we've missed the mission because the mission is go and tell. It's not so much come and see. We're grateful for the come and seeing. But more so, we want you going and telling. Thursday, I ended up at, at Lowe's in Mansfield. It's my second home away from home. I'm starting to know all the people that are there. I had some honeydews. I uh, had some things going on this weekend. Sitting in an aisle, trying to piece together a couple things and processing, thinking, looking for some things I need for the house. And there was this older guy that was standing next to me. And we both were like there for like 15 minutes. You know how it is. Like you're, you're in Lowe's or Home Depot and you're just standing, you're looking. You don't really know what you're looking at. It's like, I'm going to figure it out. And the guy comes up to help you. And he's like, can I help you, sir? You're like, no, no, no. I know more than you. It's fine. I'm, I'm good. I got this, right? <laughs> Right, you got YouTube up, you're looking up things. You're like, I got this, we're good. Just, I mean, having, some, having a moment here. Same guy doing the same thing. After about 15 minutes, we're, we're standing shoulder to shoulder and we kind of struck up a conversation, started talking. I was like on introvert mode at this moment. I'm like, I'm ready to get this, get home, get this done and then start to relax a little bit. And uh, so we started talking a little bit and I said, where are you from? And so he was telling me what project he was doing, what his name was, where he was from. So how long you've lived here? You know, are you from Texas? Yeah, I've been here my whole life. It's like, praise God, right? And then I don't know what got over me, but I didn't like, it was like an, it, within a split second and I, I'm usually not this abrupt, but there was no bridge to a spiritual conversation. I was like, bro, you know, Jesus, he looked at me and I, I, at the time I was like, I can't believe I just said that. Like, it's kind of bold. Like, <laughs> like, well, I'll see how this goes. You know, he kind of, you know, did this and, and he, then he put his head down and he, he broke eye contact with me which is a sign of like shame, right? When people don't look at you in the eye, there's something going on. So he, he looks down. He said, yeah, I know him, but I, don't, I hadn't talked to him in a long time. I said, okay. I said, well, listen, I, I didn't tell him I was a preacher. I don't ever tell people that uh, unless they ask what I do. And I said, listen, the, the good news of the gospel is this, is that through Christ, we get access to the Father. We can come to him with boldness, with confidence. We can talk to him. We can be with him. And it's a good thing. I said, I'm glad you know him. But I know that, that you, as a, as a brother, and I know that God would feel the same way. He wants you to know him better and to press in to him. And I said, let me pray for you. And I prayed. And there were people walking by because you know, a bunch of other dads showed up, you know, to look at the same thing. And we're all sitting there. And in that moment, I, I'll, I'll never forget this feeling, but I, I had this feeling. I wasn't embarrassed. I wasn't trying to, like, pray softly so I didn't disrupt other customers. Like, in that moment, like, the thing as I was praying over him and with him that just came to my mind is I knew people were walking by my peripheral. Just, like, let them see it. 
Like, let them hear it. Why not? And for a church to be on mission, I think more of those kind of things need to happen. We need to be more unashamed to, to pray out in public and, and to share out in public and to minister out in public. It doesn't always have to be about you going and like cold calling somebody with evangelism. How about just going and ministering to a stranger and getting to know them in the aisle and, and saying, how are you? Where are you from? And then maybe you don't need a bridge to anything. Just say, bro, you know Jesus. And then just let him talk. And then minister in the Spirit, be kind and loving, and at the end, pray for him and, and be with him or her or whoever it is. But the success and failure of our church over the next decade, over the next two decades, is going to be contingent upon that most of our ministry takes place outside of 800 West Berry Street. We come here to refuel and to recharge, and then we go. Because this is what God has called us to do in Christ. Amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we're grateful that you have saved us in Christ and that you have redeemed us as your people. Lord, we don't want to be like the Philistines. We don't want to be like the Israelites and try to box your power in and to give you preconditions on how you should and shouldn't work. We, we just want to be a people that are walking in faith and obedience with you. We want to breathe the mission. We want to feel the mission. We want to see the mission. We want to think the mission to see those that are far from you come to know Christ. And so I pray that this day for us is like just fuel to the fire that we need today to fuel up, but then to take what we, we experience here in these moments and sing about it and hear about it in your word. And then we go and we live a faithful presence seeking to minister to the nations, ministering to every tribe, nation, and tongue, every black and white and yellow and orange, blue and green person that we come across made in your image. Father, I pray you would give us a holy desire to see them come to know you and the mysteries of who you are. So Father, would you let us feel that? Would you let us think that, sense it today, this moment? Help us respond in faith and in obedience. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name, amen.